Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Trevor Burrs. And I'm Aaron Powell. Joining us today is Jeff Kossif. He's an associate professor of cybersecurity law in the United States Naval Academy Cyber Science Department. He is the author of 2019's The 26 Words That Created the Internet. Welcome to Free Thoughts, Jeff. Thanks for having me. So the obvious question is, your book title is, ask that question, what are the 26 words that created the internet? Uh, and were they spoken by Al Gore? They were not, although Al Gore does appear in the first paragraph of my book. Uh, he has nothing to do with Section 230. Uh, and the most important part of Section 230 is no provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider. I'm curious because you start your book, early on in your book, you discuss a, a case of obscene material at a bookstore and a Supreme Court decision regarding that. And that makes me wonder how necessary the Section 230 specifically applying to the internet was to creating this modern internet in the sense of like we like libertarians like Section 230 because it enables people to have robust protection for their speech online, to be able to express themselves without the people who are giving them the platforms for it under constant fear of being sued. And so we end up with this dynamic internet with lots of cool corners in a way that we wouldn't necessarily get. But this case that you talk about for the bookstore where a guy was inadvertently selling what was determined to be an obscene book um, and was protected against conviction for it, seems like that's we already had a regime that protected exactly the stuff that we like about the internet. That the internet is, you know, but prior to the internet in the 90s, we had robust publishing, lots of views expressed, weird little zines, bookstores selling all kinds of things. So why do we need 230 when the internet is just an electronic version of distributing text? Well, so it's a little more than that. And the analogies often really fall flat when, and I mean, I hear analogies not just to newsstands and bookstores, but also to cable, cable TV providers or TV stations. And none of them completely work because the internet is fundamentally a different medium in terms of the multilateral way of communicating. And also the vast amount of content is just not comparable to even what a bookstore or a zine publisher would be providing. Uh, and there are really two main issues. Uh, the first one is that um, the, and, and I mean, this is the, what actually motivated section 230 was a 1995 New York uh, state court ruling that that I think was very wrongly decided, but it said that because Prodigy, this early online service, uh, in, engaged in more extensive moderation, that it wasn't protected like a bookstore would be protected. It it, it was just as liable as a newspaper uh, for its user content. So that's one issue. Um, but the and I, I I would hope the courts would have sorted that out, but we don't know, and we there's no way of knowing now because we've had Section 230 since then, pretty much. But the other issue is just um, you could have let let's say that court decision was never issued, and so um, online platforms received the same sort of protection that a bookstore 
or a newsstand receives under the common law for third-party content. So that is you're liable if you know or have reason to know of the defamation or other illegality of the content. So that sounds like, okay, well, that that's pretty fair. Uh, bookstores can handle it. Why can't a platform? Well, you put that into practice. And uh, the example that I would give is Yelp. So Yelp, I think... Uh, and pe people say, oh, well, it's just about where people can go and complain. But I, I think Yelp and services like that have empowered individuals and consumers um, like nothing that we've seen before, no other communication medium, because it gives them a voice. And if they're ripped off by a business or something else bad happens, they can tell other people and it empowers them and, it, and also potential future customers of the business. Now you think about how Yelp would operate in a world without 230 in just a traditional distributor bookstore context. So, um, so a customer goes to a mechanic and they think the mechanic ripped them off. Uh, they post something on Yelp saying, you know, this is the mechanic said that they would charge me $500. They charged a thousand dollars and my car didn't work. So they post that. The mechanic doesn't like that very much. So the mechanic calls Yelp and says, hey, this is false. Now, Yelp has some choices. Uh, at this point, Yelp is still not going to be liable if it takes it down. Now, there and there's questions about how this would work in practice, but there's a good chance that if Yelp does not take the review down upon getting the complaint, then it might end up having to defend a defamation lawsuit. And you could say, well, Yelp could just investigate and find out if the mechanic ripped them off. Um, theoretically, they could. But you think about the millions and millions of reviews they host, and it's just not possible from a business perspective for them to be able to engage in those review in investigations of, you know, did the person rip the customer off or was the food cold when it was served? And so Yelp, and I don't want to speak for Yelp, and they actually have a very thoughtful uh, legal team that does this, but generally what they do, at least their current policy, is that they don't adjudicate factual disputes. So they'll take down certain things if they violate people's privacy or have threats or things like that, but they're not going to get in between involved in disputing facts. Um, they're going to, without 230, I don't see how a, a reasonable lawyer would be able to say, oh yeah, just keep it up and let's just take the risk of having to spend a lot of money <laughs> defending a defamation lawsuit, even if it's a bogus suit. So that's the sort of thing that 230 allows that um, without 230, it would be much more difficult to have that sort of platform with that business model on the internet. One of the things that you hear a lot about 230 is that the situation you described for, for these big tech things like Yelp and Facebook and Twitter, et cetera, uh, this immunity is a subsidy. Um, it, it, is that one least reasonable way of looking at it, that it is a kind of subsidy? Well, I mean, subsidizing whom? Uh, you, you said big tech. I, I would actually say it, um, the, and I mean, this is actually somewhat proven by the advertisements I see everywhere from Facebook these days saying um, we need to think, rethink how we regulate the internet. Um, it, it, de it definitely, I mean, it, it's definitely 
fundamental to the business models of a lot of platforms. I think it was essential in Facebook and Google being able to grow to where they are today. Um, I think it's also equally essential for, or far more essential now for the smaller platforms that want to at least try to compete against them, which is why you're not seeing the Yelps of the world or the Glassdoors of the world come out and say, hey, we want to, we also think that we need to uh, rethink how we regulate the internet. No, you're seeing Facebook do that. And there's a good reason for that. Uh, Section 230 helps the platforms that are trying to provide alternative venues on the internet. Uh, I mean, what, what, it, and I've been, I was a reporter in DC for a while. I practiced law in DC. I've been in DC for a while that I know that um, typically the biggest businesses are able to influence the regulations that they're subject to. So uh, that's my pessimistic way of saying, you know, I, I, I don't think that it necessarily is just this Facebook subsidy, um, but and I really worry about what competition is going to look look like if we um, get rid of two thirty, and then basically we have some sort of standard of care that somehow looks like exactly what Facebook is doing. It's interesting that we've seen over the last, especially since Trump was elected, but it's it seems to ramp up a fair amount lately, that both the left and the right are mad about Section 230. And they're mad at the big platforms, which are the ones that they focus on, having this degree of protection. But the left is about permissiveness. So it's about the stuff that you have been talking about, which is there are things that the platforms can have that the left thinks they ought to be able to be sued over or that they ought to legally have to take down, whether that's you know misinformation. Typically, it's misinformation. The right, on the other hand, seems to be upset that 230 allows platforms to take things down and that they don't like that they're getting kicked off of platforms for saying racist things or trolling. Um, is is Section 230 allow platforms to basically be too much in control? Like, have we gone too far in the other direction and that they now just have legal protection to do essentially whatever they want to restrict or allow speech however they want without consequence and that that's kind of another almost subsidy that they should have to bear some of the legal blame for the decisions that they make well so and i mean i i every day i speak with people on the hill from both sides about what their ideas are for section 230 reform and i've actually just this morning i have spoken with people on both sides uh, of that debate and uh there's very little consensus as to as to what we should be doing to improve the internet because we have very different visions of what the internet should look like now um you whether section 230 um gives platforms uh, too much discretion. I mean, a lot of that discretion is provided by the First Amendment. Um, I mean, this is going back to cases in the 1970s involving um, uh, striking down a law that uh, tried to require a newspaper's letter to the editor page to uh, print certain uh, letters. And the court said, no, you can't do that. Now, obviously, the difference is that um, 
platforms, what, what newspapers do not get that plat, the, uh, for their print edition, they do for their websites, but for their print edition, they don't get the same protections that platforms get. And you might say, well, that's unfair. And I see that point, but you also think about the vast amount of content that the platforms allow. Um, and th there's just not, if, if you were to subject them to the same liability standards of a newspaper, um, that's just not, <laughs> that, that, that's just not something that's possible. And yeah, I mean, I think the platforms uh, have, and, and when I say the platforms, I mean, right now I'll be talking about the big, the biggest social media platforms, even though, again, I don't think that 230 matters nearly as much for them as it does for, for like a Glassdoor or Yelp. Uh, but for the biggest platforms, I mean, yeah, they, they've gotten over the years, they've gotten very arrogant. Um, I, I mean, my other area of research is cybersecurity. And I mean, I can confidently say I've had more success getting information from the NSA than I have from some of the big platforms. And they've, I think they've started to change in the past few years as they've realized the scrutiny <laughs> that they're under. Uh, they, I think they were so used to being the golden children of American capitalism for so long that they thought, oh, well, we don't really have to explain how we, what we do or how we do it. Um, but I, I don't necessarily think that is a section 230 problem. I mean, I think if you got rid of section 230, uh, tomorrow, I think that you would see a lot more restriction of content. Um, and I think that if you have a judge who is faithfully applying the first amendment precedent that we have, which is not a given, but if you do, I don't think that there would be more liability for saying, you know, we're just not going to run any, any user content that talks about, uh, anything that might remotely expose us to liability because we, we can't take the risk. And they, I, I don't see them being held liable for that. Now, some people disagree with me, but I, I think that would take a radical reshaping of First Amendment precedent to get there. Some have argued, including many senators, within the 230, there is a good faith or neutrality requirement uh, in terms of their moderation decisions. Is that a viable argument? No, <laughs> <laughs> there, there's not. There, well, there's a good – I mean, the, there are two separate things. There is – so there's C1 and C2. C1 is the 26 words that I talked about. And then C2 provides an additional protection saying that uh, platforms also are not liable for good faith uh, efforts to restrict access to lewd, lascivious, uh, obscene, filthy, otherwise objectionable content. Um, but first, those are two separate protections and the vast majority of the litigation under section 230, even for takedown decisions, uh, has been decided under C1, the 26 words, but even for C for C1 or C2, you also mentioned neutrality. Um, there is nothing in section 230 that requires, suggests, hints at, neutrality. It does not, it's not conditioned on neutrality. There's this whole argument that's developed uh, saying, you know, section 230 only applies to neutral platforms. So you have to choose between being a publisher or a platform. That's not what it says in the least. When you look at the history of section 230, 
the entire reason that it was passed was because there was a that Congress wanted to protect a an online service that was being penalized because it was exercising too much discretion over user content. So now whether it should, I mean, Congress, all, I, I, I think there would be First Amendment issues, but Congress could always make that decision to place conditions on it. But that's a different question than whether it currently does. And I think anyone who is just making a reasonable attempt to read the statute and its legislative history will acknowledge that it does not say that 230 is conditioned on being a neutral platform. How much of the debate and the vitriol around this and the kind of crazy calls from politicians on both sides to break the internet are just a problem of bigness? So you've talked about how 230, really the the main people it's protecting are the smaller platforms, but all of the ire is directed against the big platforms, you know, they're not, Josh Hawley's not mad at Yelp. He's mad at Facebook and Twitter. Um, and it's interesting because we started, you know, 230 was born out of a time when the way you got on the internet was to use a, a big platform, CompuServe, Prodigy, AOL. And then we went through a period where the internet was much more decentralized. You had your local ISP and you connected to a lot of services. And now we've moved back to one where for a lot of people, the internet simply means Facebook and Google and Twitter. Um, but then that mean that like, it does seem like there is a concern that if you grant, it's one thing to grant thousands of small platforms the ability to discriminate against content, but if you have two or three very large platforms upon which basically all content people are going to see is hosted, and they have the ability to discriminate willy-nilly, they can genuinely exclude significant amount of viewpoints or or push the internet in a less free and open direction. And so if we if this this sine wave of centralization and decentralization goes back in the direction of decentralization, would that make a lot of these conversations somewhat moot because you wouldn't people wouldn't be as worried much about Facebook cutting off their access to the world? I think so. I mean, I I think that the first I I I think that the idea there, there, there is this idea that 230 reform could fix everything that people say is wrong with, with Facebook. And I was just in a conversation. I mean, this isn't just one conversation. This talks that I have routinely with a Hill staffer who was really angry about something that a social media company was doing with user data. And I, I I share that concern and I said, okay, well, this is why uh, it's a concern that the United States still does not have a national privacy or cybersecurity law when uh, and, and we're relying on the states to pass these cut rate terrible versions of it because Congress still hasn't done that. But that's a privacy law issue. That's I mean that the concerns that a lot of people have about Facebook and the other big and Google, have to do with how they're using user data. Now, obviously, there are also concerns about their uh, about how big they are and what they could do for user speech, which are legitimate. 
but I, I don't, I, I, so, I mean, I, I suppose if they were smaller, um, perhaps there, there would be, um, there, there would be less discussion about section 230, but I, I, I just, I mean, I feel like the debate is so off the rails. It's not like there's just one little logical fallacy in the current debate about tech policy. I mean, this is like, you know, I do not like Facebook for these reasons, and most of them are valid. So we need to change 230. And it, I'm so used to that right now that I, I don't know if any one change will really affect that. I mean, I, I'll say, I mean, for me personally, I live in Arlington, Virginia, and we have a great local news website called arlnow.com, which um, has, it's really replaced the Washington Post in a lot of ways. But what I find um, the most, uh, the, the, the most useful are the user comments. Perhaps, um, the people in Arlington uh, have more time on their hands than elsewhere, but they, uh, have really thoughtful, but often, um, heated <laughs> discussions. And that w- when we talk about pla- the effect on, pla- I mean, that's a platform, uh, and people don't, people always think, oh, big tech, it's Twitter, it's Facebook. No, I mean, these local news sites, which really rely on often anonymous and pseudonymous commenters. I mean, I don't see when I read that, I, I mean, my mind always goes to legal issues and I always think I have no idea how they would allow comments if it wasn't for section 230. Uh, but we don't really get that in the debate. What we get is Facebook has done something else that makes people really creeped out about privacy when that has nothing to do with section 230. I want to ask a little bit about the I think that's bends people's minds a little bit when you say when people say Facebook has First Amendment rights. Uh, you talked about the newspaper, the letter to the editor newspaper case, or that Twitter has First Amendment rights. Uh, what is the nature of those rights? It's 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 a strange thing I think for a lot of people to hear. Well, it's it's that I mean the government. I mean so, something that should be fairly fundamental um, to basic thinking about the First Amendment is that the government cannot. Uh, commandeer private property and say, okay, you must, uh, you, you, you must provide these viewpoints and you, you must allow this content. Now there are certain cases, um, where, I mean, we, we have things like, um, broadcast regulation, which, uh, the Supreme court has addressed and carved out. Um, we have common carriers. Uh, I disagree strongly with people who would say that a website be- is a common carrier, but there's reasonable disagreements about that. But the the idea that, I mean, we, we don't want the government getting involved, no matter how well-intentioned it is. And this, this comes up on both sides. Uh, there was a bill that was proposed um, but both in terms of the government trying to pressure companies to carry speech and also not to, uh, there was a bill, which I would say is one of the scariest section 230 proposals that I've seen that was proposed, uh, over the summer, which, uh, basically said, okay, well, we're really concerned about medical misinformation, which I'm very concerned about. And I think the platforms, uh, I, they've done a lot. I think they should have been more aggressive earlier on in the pandemic, but I, which is their right to do. But uh, what the bill says is basically um, Section 230 won't apply to algorithmic promotion of medical misinformation during a time of a national health crisis. And 
the but the kicker is that the HHS secretary gets to de define what is medical misinformation, and perhaps people think, okay, well, we trust the current, and many people don't. But I mean, I think that the people who are proposing this generally trust the current administration, uh, which which is great. But what I try to talk to him about is, okay, well, let's think like five years into the future when HHS secretary, I, I won't give a crackpot name, <laughs> but let's just say that there's some uh, doc, Dr. Name. Nick, Dr. Nick from the Simpsons. Yeah. Yeah. So someone who believes that vaccines have microchips and all sorts of stuff like that. I mean, that that's fundamental to why the, why the first amendment protects both the ability for private companies to be able to decide what speech they carry and what speech they don't carry. And I, I obviously there are always exceptions. I mean, the, there's been one Supreme court justice in us history who believes the first amendment's absolute and he's not alive anymore. So I think that that battle has been fought and lost, but I, but, but we are very careful about these exceptions. And what's been really concerning to me in this online speech debate over the past few years is that people on both sides seem to be so willing to compromise what I think are really core <laughs> values of free speech in our country that set us apart from so much of the rest of the world. And yeah, there are some bad facts on both sides. Um, I disagree with some of the big social media platforms uh, decisions in terms of blocking certain stories. I, 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 I think those were wrong and I I'm generally in favor of more, more ideas on the marketplace, but not, not flooding it. But, uh, and I think they, they, they went too far for my taste, but that's different than saying, okay, well, let's let the government come in and sit and set this set, make this decision because, um, whoever the government is, is going to change, but your policies that you've advocated for could stay the same. And it's hard to go back from that. I want to ask a little bit more about the common carrier thing, because there are people in my world of libertarian legal scholarship. Uh, there are people in that world who are uh, pursuing and, and, and uh, someone endorsing this idea that we can take provisions originally designed for railroads, uh, this, the idea that there was one railroad line between Smithville and Jonesburg and therefore the railroad cannot keep people off that line and apply them to these internet companies. Um, you said you really disagree with it, but I'd like to you to kind of expound on, on why that's such a difficult comparison. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think that, I mean, the, the more common, uh, Sorry for the pun, but the more the more frequent comparison is between is uh, for phone companies and also to a lesser extent, this is a little different uh, cable companies. Um, and the 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 difference here, I mean, first is that for I, I think the most fundamental difference is that uh, for common carriers, the nature of the speech is not part of the, is not part of the product. Um, so it, the, but for, and, and the nature of what's restricted is not part of the product. I mean, that, that's the, the product of a phone company is just allowing people to have one-on-one -on -one conversations. I mean, social media, the entire 
value of social media is that, and some people try to break this up between the algorithm and the distribution. I think it's all the same. It's all part of the same product. It's the experience of being on social media. I mean, I would say that uh, whatever, uh, I guess, 8chan, whatever um, the the most sort of freewheeling <laughs> site is, that's a very different experience than being on Facebook. Reddit is a very different experience than being on Twitter. Uh, and that comes down to these editorial decisions that the private companies are making that differentiate each other. The, another difference is, I mean, for cable providers, for example, one factor that the Supreme Court weighed in sort of um, in, in local carriage rules was saying, well, I mean, they basically have a bottleneck, these cable companies, to individuals' homes. Uh, you don't have that with social media. And yes, I mean, Facebook and Twitter, they have tremendous market share. Uh, but, you know, who else had tremendous market share back in the day when newspapers <laughs> had staffs were newspapers. Um, and they were not uh, dubbed to basically be, be able to be taken over by the government and commandeered for their, their editorial policies. So I, I definitely see where this is coming from. I think there, I, 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 I just, I don't think the comparison is terribly strong, especially when you look at what value the companies uh, the, that the companies provide. I mean, the perhaps the companies have become too. Some of the companies have become too big to compete against. I mean, I think about it was probably like two thousand six or two thousand seven. Uh, in either Forbes or Fortune, there was this big cover story with the t with two guys on it on the cover. And it was the founders of MySpace, and the general theme of the article is: Will anyone be able to stop MySpace? And the answer is, well, yeah, <laughs> that, 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 that's done. And I mean, perhaps that's not possible now. I mean, I will say, and I should probably give the caveat that everything I'm saying is only on my behalf and not uh, representing the Naval Academy or DOD. Uh, I'll say that when I taught, when I teach every semester, I ask my students, you know, what, what platforms do you use? Um, this is my seventh year at the Naval Academy. My first year, I would say the a pretty solid majority said they regularly used Facebook. Um, this year, not all that many, and also not that many on Instagram. Uh, they're using TikTok. They're using Twitch. They're so. I mean, they. I, I just think that there. Yes, there is tremendous amount of um, market domination, but it, I think it's just very different than a company that basically has a complete bottleneck. I don't think that's the same thing. The thing that has me always scratching my head to your analogies is that even if you're talking about railroad or as you said, more like the phone companies, no one ever thought that letting two Nazis talk on a phone line meant that AT&T was promoting Nazis or letting a Nazi ride on a train meant that they were promoting Nazis or whatever, whoever would be in that situation. It, it boggles my mind that people make this analogy. I mean, so I'm, I'm with you on that. <laughs> yeah. You mentioned people switching to Twitch, though, and that makes me think of, I guess, another way of approaching this question, which is, yes, social media is, there are lots of alternatives to social media. You can switch off of it. You can send your messages other ways. But Twitch is owned by Amazon, and Amazon Web Services powers 
I don't know. I've seen numbers like 40% of websites are in some way powered by Amazon Web Services. My guess is a huge percentage of apps rely on Amazon Web Services. And we saw after the the January 6 attack on the Capitol, we saw Amazon Web Services basically deplatform, I think it was Parler, the the Trumpist social media platform. And is that a more concerning issue or does that get us closer to the common carrier when it's not the platform sitting on top, but it's the pipes themselves that can discriminate against? Yeah, them? I mean, I think obviously that's more concerning um, when the I, I, I also think I, I don't see that as necessarily a common carrier issue. I mean, there are the I, I think the problem is that the few alternatives there were all did not want to do business. Uh, so so I think in some ways I, I I will say, and again, my personal view, I'm not at all sympathetic to uh, platforms that uh, were that that were used. I, I I and I think that the platforms themselves, and this includes what we would think of as big tech, um, should have done more. Um, but when you look at the reasoning for it, it it's you you know I mean this was the, their reasoning is at least they're alleging that certain platforms were used by uh, people involved in an attempted insurrection. Um, it's a tough issue. Uh, It's it's definitely more concerning than, you know, Facebook taking off Nazi content directly. I mean, for me, that's a much more clear cut case. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I'm obviously, uh, again, I I always think about the issue if it's, if someone else, even if I agree with the decision that was made, I like to think about, well, what happens if, someone else is making that same decision and has that same amount of power that concerns me. I don't see the same comparison with common carrier and I'm not an antitrust expert. So um, I'm probably not the best person to opine on that, but yeah, I mean, I, I'm more concerned with sort of deeper in the stack when things are being cut off. Um, And I'm not, I, I don't have any really good solutions as to how to deal with that. The thing that strikes me is very interesting in this debate is one of the things I've covered and done written on a bunch over the years is campaign finance debates. And 10 years ago, when I went around to the time I started at Cato, we had the Citizens United decision. And there was a lot of people on the left who were very, very upset about that decision. But fundamentally, it always seemed to me that they were mostly upset about it because they feared that the resulting marketplace of ideas would be against them. So they were, they were not actually making these principled First Amendment arguments. They were saying that if you let corporations spend too much money, the, the marketplace of ideas will tilt toward conservatives. And conservatives said, no, 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 this is, you know, principled First Amendment application. Now it seems to me that everything has flipped around and conservatives are making basically the exact same arguments, uh, focusing on the fact that they think the marketplace of ideas as quote unquote run by big tech will be against conservatives. Therefore, it needs to be regulated for fairness without any concern of a, the first amendment or B a principled position or C, as you pointed out, that power being used 
you know, in worse hands in the future. Um, and I'm not sure if that's an analogy. That yeah. Yeah. Here. I mean, I think that it, it's definitely, it, it's interesting to see how quickly that this flipped around. So um, just two, I guess it was just two years ago. And, and I mean, the, the most common argument that we see in courts right now, and this might change um, as states continue to pass laws, but the most common argument challenging uh, platforms' decisions to uh, deplatform or demonetize content or remove content uh, has been saying that the platforms violated my First Amendment rights. And you don't see that too much coming from members of Congress, but you do see that a lot in litigation. And the biggest barrier that the plaintiffs have to that is a decision that Justice Kavanaugh wrote uh, two years ago, which was split 5-4 between conservatives and liberals, and uh, where the conservatives, the five-justice conservative majority, this was a case involving a cable access TV station that um, basically told two of its critics, hey, you can't put anything else uh, on our channel. And this is a cable access TV station that was basically chartered by state law. And even in that circumstance, the Supreme Court majority said they're not a government actor, so they're not subject to the First Amendment. And that has been cited by courts. Uh, the Ninth Circuit soon after got a claim from PragerU against uh, YouTube, and the Ninth Circuit pointed directly to Kavanaugh's decision and say, nope, you can't, if a cable access TV station, which I think is a much closer call, uh, because that's you could see that as an extension of the government. If they're not a state actor, we're certainly not going to say that YouTube is a state actor. And that's how quickly it's gone. And I mean, I, I frankly wonder if that cable access case was this year rather than, than two years ago. I really wonder whether it would have been totally flipped around in the result and whether the liberal justices would have gone the other way and the conservatives would have uh, banded together to say that this was state action. I'm not sure, but uh, I've actually thought quite a bit about that. We have spent the last year and a half living through a pandemic um, and it's fingers crossed. It looks like we're on the way out of it, but it still is burning through a lot of states. A lot of people are dying and a lot of the deaths seem to be caused by misinformation by people believing screwy things about vaccines, by people thinking that horse dewormer will save them, and so on. And a lot of this is coming from stuff they're reading on major and minor online platforms. Um, and Section 230 might protect that speech, and the First Amendment might protect that speech, but should we should we be restricting that in the same way that we restrict, say, shouting fire in a crowded theater? Wow, you get me on to my favorite topic, which is um, the fire, the the misuse of uh, fire in a crowded theater. Um, I so my my I actually I have a book on anonymous speech that's coming out um, in a few months, but the book I'm currently writing that's coming out after that is tentatively title liar in a crowded theater and uh, it is uh, about why the first amendment protects false speech um there's a whole chapter about uh, which I, I won't bore you all with today about how fire in a crowded theater actually 
first is not good law and also is not what uh, Justice Holmes said. <laughs> but the broader point. Well, I do think you should point out at least a little bit about what that case was, because it's worth it for our listeners with how just how horrible that that case was. And what, yeah, what you, so, I mean, yeah. that was a, that, that was a seditious libel case. Um, and I mean, it, it was basically in dicta. Uh, Justice Holmes talked about um, how you can't falsely – there are certain limits on First Amendment protection. Uh, you can't falsely, uh, say, fire in a theater and cause a panic, uh, which – so the falsely and the causing a panic are, 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 are not really paid attention to. Uh, other things that are not paid attention to is the next year he wrote a dissent in which he actually articulated the entire framework for the marketplace of ideas. And the other thing that is completely overlooked is that opinion that he initially wrote with the fire quote in it was o explicitly overruled by the Supreme court in 1969. So I, uh, and replaced with a much higher standard for yeah the guy was handing out any draft yeah yeah uh, dur during world war one and that's what holmes equated to yelling falsely yelling fire in a crowded theater i mean it wouldn't yeah yeah i mean there were a lot of, and there's actually an entire book that someone wrote about uh that period from 1918 to 90, 1919 when holmes basically recognized the error of his ways um but the the much broader issue um beyond the fire in a crowded theater is that the First Amendment does protect a tremendous amount of false speech, uh, not absolute. So we have defamation, for example. I mean, we have fraud, we have false advertising, but we set very high bars for that. Uh, there is not, I, I mean, the, the most classic recent case is a case called U.S. versus Alvarez from, I guess it was a decade ago now, where there was a federal law that said uh, you uh, that, that it's a federal crime to lie about having a military honor. There was a guy who was recently elected to a water board and he uh, in California and he, I don't know why he made this lie, but he's, he got up and said that he was the recipient of the congressional medal of honor, which is like the easiest thing, thing to debunk possible, which you could just, you could just wiki. Yeah. <laughs> I've, as a side, have you ever read the 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 his brief uh, in that case? The very, if I remember correctly, the brief that he submitted as petitioner, the very first line of it is something like, "My client is a liar. Since I have known him, he has told me that he's you know won all these medals, that he did all these things like that." It was, but the, my client, while a liar, is not a criminal. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, what the what the Supreme Court did is they said they said you know we cannot have without any specific demonstration of harm or intent. We can't just have a blanket prohibition on lies. And um, what's interesting in the misinformation context, one thing that I'm doing for this book is I obviously focus some on defamation. You've got to deal with all the classic cases like New York Times versus Sullivan. But what I find more interesting are the non-defamation false speech cases. So there's this rich body of case law that's not really gone to the Supreme Court um, involving things like people who uh, read a diet book that says crazy things can make you lose weight and are totally healthy, and they get really sick. Uh, there's a lawsuit from the 1990s against uh, someone who published the Encyclopedia of Mushrooms, and it basically led them to um, consume mushrooms that almost destroyed their liver, things like that. And 
almost, and I mean, there's uh, maps that take people on to hazardous conditions, all sorts of things that come out that, that are based on false speech. And the courts almost uniformly say we we're not we are not able to hold someone liable for false speech because we're too concerned about the chilling effects on on speech and i think that for the pandemic question which you initially asked about um i mean there and one thing my book is really looking at is how do you distinguish between true and false which is harder than you would think i mean i think the one example from the pandemic has been the lab leak theory, which has not been, uh, I, I mean, I, I don't think there's any consensus either way on that, but I would say the line of expert thinking a year ago on that theory is very different <laughs> than the line of thinking today. And if you had an ability, if the government had an ability to prohibit misinformation a year, 18 months ago, uh, perhaps there would not have been nearly as much discussion about that if the government could say, this is false speech, this is misinformation. And then where would we be? And and then there would not have been any, any further discussion. Uh, I also think, and I mean, I'm kind of articulating this in the book, I think that one thing that's often too um, un underappreciated about the First Amendment is there is really, in addition to this marketplace of ideas, there's also uh, a level of just sort of individual responsibility for the listener of the speech. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that the, I mean, if, if you say, you know, take this horse dewormer, everything's going to be fine. Uh, yeah, there, that's a problem, but it's all, there's also a problem that we have so many people who are so willing to believe that and are and lack the critical thinking skills to assess that uh, reliably. And that's a much deeper problem. And I mean, it, it is a problem, but I, I think addressing it uh, goes far beyond just dealing with how you restrict speech. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, make sure to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. Free Thoughts is produced by Landry Ayers. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.